Hi, this is Lynn Altman. I am the president and founder of Brand Now, and you are listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 192 countries. I am Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Alexander Sowry, founder of Relief Riders International, which is a humanitarian-based expedition company that, get this, leads relief missions on horseback in India, Turkey, and Ecuador since 2004. They've offered free medical and social care to more than 30,000 people, 19,000 of whom were children. They've been awarded the United Nations Positive Peace Award. This is the ultimate do-good organization. And you know that in every episode of this podcast, I like to feature one of my songs underneath the introduction and at the end. And I always try to make this song relevant somehow to my guest or the subject matter. And in this episode, I've chosen the song Riding the Burks from the album Play by my band Project Grand Slam. I wrote this song while riding my bicycle in the Berkshire Mountains of Massachusetts which is not quite like riding horses for relief missions in India, but it's probably about as close as I'll ever get to that. So I thought it fit. So Alexander Sowry, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Thank you, Robert. Fantastic. I, I just wanted to share something with you before we started. I lived in the Berkshires for 30 years. I don't know if you know that. 30 years? No, I did not know that. Yeah, no, the Berkshires are really my that's like my that's my tribe is there okay somehow you got from the Berkshires to India I know I want to hear about this transition what happened I mean did you skip like the tricycle and the bicycle you went right to horses or something well so at a very early age um, my father was Indian my mother was French I was born in New York City we would go to India and you know they tried everything on me but you know, when, when they gave me horseback riding lessons, it stuck. And I learned in India. And at the age of eight, my father sent me to a uh, very strict British-style boarding school in the foothills of the Himalayas. And at the time, India, nobody would ride horses in India. And I, had, I knew how to ride. So he had asked the principal to send me down on my days off by myself because nobody else could ride. So I would actually go riding in the mountains by myself as a nine-year-old. And that's really where it all kind of, you know, came together in terms of my love for the Indian breed called the Marwari horse. Um, I also was therapizing the fact that I was living in New York City and my dad decided that I needed to see my Indian, uh, get a, you know, get a deeper understanding of my Indian roots because we, I grew up in a French household. My mother was French. And so he shipped me off at the age of eight um, to, to the foothills of the Himalayas. And it was hard. But, uh, you know, he, he did give me the opportunity to ride. And that's where I really f- kind of learned how to ride. I mean, 
developed my writing skills even more and kind of, you know, just dealt, processed the whole being away from my parents, you know. So you're in the Himalayas. You're like yeah. in the shadow of Mount Everest or something like that. Not quite, but, but we we're at 10,000 feet. That's like way further. That's down. way up there. You're riding horses. I mean, I got this image of the whole Pony Express thing. I know you're not carrying mail. The Pony Express, the Wild West, 1860 to 1861. <laughs> you know, you're carrying medical stuff. How did the relief riders thing get started? So I, relief riders, like quickly, I'd worked in film for 15 years and um, I was coming up on a, you know, like the crossroads of like, what am I doing? And then all of a sudden, my father and four friends passed away in a six month period. And I had a real like, you know, powerful walkabout where I just faced myself and had to just kind of grow. Uh, and I, you know, through a long walkabout and a return to my roots to India, because after that school, I never went back to India for 20 years because we were done with India. And when my dad passed away, I just it, it flooded back into me. And again, the horse saved me. And so I went out to India and I just had this vision of, you know, wanting to ride those Indian horses and also, you know, wanting to, to do something meaningful and purposeful and, and, and switch from, you know, I used to work in special effects on science fiction movies, which was wonderful. And I had a really uh, diverse film career too. I mean, I worked at the Cannes Film Festival, I directed and produced commercials. It was all very good, but I was, it was not where I was, where my heart was. And um, so I basically uh, had this vision while I was in India that I, I wanted to, to, to ride through these rural populations on my, my favorite breed and, and give back and, you know, find some purpose to my life. I was 32 at the time. And, um, and I, I, you know, when I, when I came up with the idea, people looked at me like I was crazy, you know, like you're going to ride through the desert and bring people food and medicine. Like, call me when you wake up, you know, like it was just an unbelievable concept. Tell me about the horse. You keep referring to the Indian horses. What's different yeah. about them? So the, the Marwari horse is the indigenous breed of India. It comes from Rajasthan and it's considered actually a demigod. Proud elegance and a graceful, powerful physique. The supreme Mawari horses have been worshipped in India for thousands of years as magic, divine creatures. In its mythological setting with the Rajputs of Rajasthan, um, the horse is a battle horse. It has a lot of folkloric and mytho you know, mythology to it in regards to the Maharajas of Rajasthan. There's a famed horse that basically saved his, uh, saved his king. Um, even though, you know, it lost a leg and it, it, let's put it this way. They're very strong. They're very nimble in the sand. They have lyre like ears that turn 180 degrees. They're absolutely stunning to look at. I mean, they're just otherworldly when you look, they don't look like normal horses. What are and, they bred for? Well, at the time they, they, they were the Maharaja's horses and all of like their armies, their cavalry would use them. The British, however, the same thing as the Mustangs in the US, the British knew that those horses were far stronger and superior than their thoroughbreds. So they started to kill them off whenever they had a chance. So the actual Marwari breed was going extinct. And I think round about the 1990s, mid 90s, 2000s, there was a huge like uh, 
movement to save these horses. A lot of Westerners that were, were big fans of the horses came to India and, you know, there people just kind of rallied around saving that horse. And now it's actually the pride of India. Horses go, those horses go for so much money now when you think about it. Like when I started Relief Riders in 2004, your average horse, you could, you could have bought a horse for $1,000. Now they're going for like a million dollars more. You know, that's crazy. But they're, they're, they're an incredible, like they're very valued now. And there's all the mythology that follows it. All right, so let me get this straight. You, yeah. you spent a lot of time in the Berkshires. You yeah. went back to India. Yeah. You're in the Himalayas. You're riding these horses. Then you stopped going to India for 20 so I, years. I, I, yeah, I, when I was a kid, I was in the Himalayas riding those horses. And then in, in 2002, I went back to India. And, and it, like in, 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 it's actually quite a crazy story. When my I'm father- crazy in this part of this thing, okay? Yeah. <laughs> When my father passed away, I had a very, you know, powerful vision because, you know, he put me in that school for his own reasons. And I really kind of processed it through the horse. I healed myself or I, the horse was very supportive to, to my experience there. And when he died, I, I actually kind of woke up. I hadn't ridden in a while. And I found 13 horses in the U.S. The only like I think it was 10 or 13. I can't remember horses that had been sent outside of India were on a small island in, uh, in Martha's Vineyard called Chappaquiddick. And when I found that, I just got in my car and drove there and asked to ride them. And, and so I had this whole experience. And after that, I went to India and I just wanted to be back on those horses. And I created, you know, a, a year later, I created the concept of, of relief riders through that. All right. So you, you're in the movie business. You decided that you're going to get into something different. You pick something about as far away from the movie business as you could possibly pick. You're riding horses in India to do relief work. I mean, how did the whole thing come about? How did you organize this thing? Well, so I, I had been a special event. I, I started off producing uh, theater, and then I went to special events, uh, and then I went to film. So I, I was a producer by nature. I'd raise money, and I'd work with uh, schedules, budgets, and logistics. So this is a real special event, I'll tell you that. Yeah, it was very live too. And I, you know, I, I have always done unusual things in terms of work, very lucky, uh, very unique projects. And they, they all served to, to experientially to teach me what I needed to know. I had no idea what I was doing. If I, it, it, you know, I just put one foot in front of the other and, and went with this idea and it was a dream, like, it, it, you know, I had a dream to go ride horses in rural populations, most in, in the desert, and help people. And so I found the horses. I went straight to the Red Cross. I mean, I'll never forget, forget it. I walked up the steps in cargo pants and flip-flops and a shirt, you know, with an idea. And I somehow got a meeting with like the uh, the PR person for the uh, for the Red Cross in Delhi. And then he loved the project and gave it to the deputy. Uh, uh, assistant deputy general of the red cross and then i somehow got a meeting and i i they said well you know we'll write a memorandum of intent but we want to see a, a proposal and i'd already started a business proposal and i said sure no problem and it was a beautiful proposal it was like 30 pages long and everything that i gave it to them and they said you where know did what? you get people to sign on to this to be your writers i mean what'd you do did well, you I mean, advertise that, that, for this 
so so the the real crux of it i mean that comes later but but i put this whole thing together and then yes i mean i just kind of put it out into the universe and said you know i'm doing this i sent out a bunch of press releases i somehow got lucky where i had six people on my first ride which is not a lot but it's not it, it was definitely not a not you know the minimum amount um we usually ride with 12 we did that first ride and then all those press releases and that this was a time where you actually sent physical press releases to 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 magazines i literally before you knew it won an award i mean it was so unusual and like wondrous that when people like read the press release they they almost couldn't believe it and mind you we had the, the iraq war and there was a lot of bad news and this was like a, a happy news story you know what i mean all right, so, so I got to stop you because I got to stop yeah. you. I got to understand the details here. You said you had six people. You recruited them somehow. What was it? What did they have with them? Did you guys camp out? Is this multi-day? Did you carry oh, yeah. the medical well, supplies on the horses? How did you arrange yeah, so, this whole thing? Well, I worked with the Red Cross initially because the, the, the most important thing was our medical programs. And, you know, basically our clients are, are the rural villagers. We're serving them for free. I mean, if we don't, that's the whole concept. If we can't provide them with, you know, uh, 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 an A-plus medical experience, there's no point in doing anything, you know? You have so, doctors with you? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I worked with the Red Cross. I luckily got, you know, one of the four uh, triage or disaster management specialists who, they allocated to me. They said, you know, please, you know, take this person and work with him, design your programs. I worked with him. We got all the programs. And then I found the outfitter before that. We found the itinerary that would take us into the heart of rural populations that actually needed medical care. And, uh, you know, we put those things together and, and we rode into those villages not knowing how to do anything, like, except for I knew... <laughs> I knew that I was with the disaster management specialist who has been with us all this time. He's like my uncle. Like we're like, my whole team is family now. We've wow. done it for 18 years. How like, long a ride was it to get to the village? The so first it was, village. It, it was this, well, let me just give you the holistic view. It was a 17 day ride. We would stop in six villages. We would do five programs and each village was roughly 30 to 40 kilometers from each other. So we would ride 30 to 40 kilometers, you know, to, to get to the next village, which takes about, you know, five to seven hours, depending on the, the rhythm, you know, the this pace of the ride. All right. So you, you're riding five hours, you get to the first village, you say, yeah. hi, we're here. They didn't know you were coming, I assume. No, they do, because the first village on our first, um, we're going back to the first ride, which is 18 years ago. That particular ride took us to the village of Kirod, where we actually did our first medical camp. So in order to do a medical camp, you have to market the medical camp. So you have to let the, the rural populations know that you're coming. And in doing that, you basically, uh, we printed out these huge banners that we would hang in like seven or eight of the villages, you know, like a couple of banners that literally hang in the village square. We'd send out flyers and I'd hire a, a Jeep uh, or two Jeeps actually for 48 hours where they had a loudspeaker saying, you know. They were the, your advanced crew, huh? Yeah, they were my marketing crew to let everybody, you you were offering a service and you had to let everybody know Got it. Okay. The time and where the venue was. 
Um, and so that's how we did that. And, and we would did see they host you in a certain place. I mean, did you arrange that in no. advance? Are you doing so, it in the village square or what? No, I would go out on, on a needs assessment tour. I would choose the buildings where I could actually do our eye surgery camps in or our eye surgery programs. I mean, I, it was, you know, well-researched. We couldn't just show up and do it. I had to go through those villages, see where we could do it, and then basically run the logistics for all of our camps. We'd have to, all of our medical camps, we would have to go to, to the schools. I would work with uh, the village officials uh, to make sure that we would have access to several schools because we were deworming 1,200 children at the time in, you know, in groups of 300 and, and you know, like four to five schools. Uh, and then we'd give them four to six months worth of educational materials. We were giving away a, a livestock in the form of goats to uh, below poverty level individuals or families, you know, that had nothing so that they could use the goats for subsistence or sustenance, uh, you know, goat milk. How did you bring goats and all of these supplies with you if you're on horseback? So the goats, <laughs> that's a funny question. The, the goats, goats ride horses too? No, but the, the goats, <laughs> we, we herded and the, on the first ride and they, they, they just couldn't handle the distances. They're not horses. And you know they would lose they would lose a lot of weight. We stopped it, and I I, I trucked them to the to the villages. I had them trucked. It was not fair. You had like a cattle drive with the goats. Oh, had, yeah, I, I had a had a goat drive. A more goat like drive. Hi everybody, this is Robert Miller. My new single, All of the Time, is a playful, whimsical love song. It's light and airy and exudes the happiness and joy of being in love. The reviewers love it too. Melody Maker has given it five stars and calls it pure bliss, an intimate sound with abundant melodic riches. Pop Icon also gave it five stars and called it ecstasy. You can stream all of the time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or any of the other streaming platforms. The links are in the show notes to this episode, and you can download it from the pgsstore.com. And if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast and give us a nice review too, if you're so inclined. You can do all of that and check out all of our episodes by visiting our website, at followyourdreampodcast.com. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. Now, tell me this, because I'm, I'm fascinated by this. You're in the village. You're performing things like surgery. How are you doing that in the middle of a village? Did so, they have the facilities there? Did you bring no. an operating room with you? What happened? Yes. So I, I, I was, uh, I would go out. I had a, I had a team of, uh, I had an ophthalmologist with its, uh, an ophthalmological team of 12 people. We would literally set up uh, eye surgery camps in the desert. We didn't do it that many times tented. We would find a hard structure. We'd sterilize and fumigate it. In order to do a camp like that, let's say you're doing a hundred eye surgeries for free. You can't just take a patient and, and give them a, an eye surgery and keep them there. You have to bring a chaperone because they have to take care of them. So it's times two. So we have two. We have we had to set up uh, a camp for 200 people, that of which 100 people were getting uh, eye surgeries. You have to set up mattresses, sheets. I had to get a caterer. We trucked in all of the eye surgery uh, equipment. 
and they we would uh, they they we would have two to three eye surgeons work for literally you know 12 hours each day and get through a uh, 100 it was it was remarkable it's an amazing experience i can't even believe i i did that like on my resume you know like <laughs> i've done a lot of things but that one is like uh, I mean, I have to tell you, for a lay person like me, it sounds as crazy as it is sounding as we discuss this. Yeah. But I got to compliment you. I mean, to pull this off at the level that you did it, you know, 100 plus people at each event that you're doing here, that's staggering. You know, the, the, the eye surgeries were really articulated and, and not complicated, but they, they, it, it involved a lot of focus, a lot of logistics. Our general medical camps were like the, the most incredible experience. So we, our medical camps would have uh, six specialists, ear, nose, and throat, general physician, ophthalmologist, dentist, dermatologist, and there's one I'm forgetting. But anyway. And where are these I, people coming from? I'm trucking them in. I no, hired, but I mean, what's their background? How did they get to you? I got to doctors. Them. I got to them. I hired them. I chose them. I went to meet with them. I told them what I was going to do. And then I, Indian, I hired them. In, in India, they're all Indian or they're yeah. from different countries or what? Yeah, they, no, they're all Indian and they're all regional. And, and the, that's a really great thing because a lot of the rural populations have, you know, these um, uh, small infirmaries that they have doctors there, but there's a lot of corruption where the medic medicine gets sold through the back door and they don't want to see local doctors. They're so happy to see new people from the big cities. They just have more confidence with it. And it's also a, a red, we, we did this as a, a Red Cross joint. So we worked in association with the Red Cross. So there was a lot of, um, forget the word, um, just not integrity, but they, they were just very happy to credibility. have credibility. Exactly. Sorry. But when I first researched all of this and I got all of my written permissions from the Board of Health of Rajasthan, they would tell me, listen, you know, don't get too excited. You'll be lucky to see 60 to 80 people. And, and I said, well, 60 to 80 people is awesome. You know, like, I, I'll take that. Our first medical camp when we did it saw 559 people. I, I mean, it was, I couldn't believe it. And of course, like, like I told you, like I had no idea what I was doing. I just put in one, you know, one foot in front of the other. Like, okay, this is a medical camp. I had the great luck to have Dr. Aurora, who is, um, was from the Red Cross. He's, he's since retired, but he's always been our executive medical director. He guided me. He also didn't know what to expect. And we were treating all those people and we would just stay open till it, till we got everybody treated. And, and all of our, medical camps from that first one on were never below 500. They, the, the most we treated with the least amount of riders, and I'm gonna mention this because the riders play a very important role. They helped me with a lot of the details and logistics at the camp you know, in regards to management. So they register patients' names. We have a, a male and a men and women's table. We have a dispensary table that has medicine for 1,500 people that has to be triaged and cut up. The medicine has to be cut up in do you know, doses and gauze has to be cut. For the dentistry, you know, they have to, we have to create bandages. There's a lot of work. Um, Man, there's two dental assistants that work with four dentists for the dental treatments. There's a runner that has to just do everything. You know, there's a lot. And so with six, six riders, 
we did 869 patients. And I mean, I was, I was just, I couldn't believe it. So how many days does it take to do 800 plus patients? Oh, that's in one day. One day. Yeah. Yeah. One day. And Indian doctors, well, you know, I'll, I'll share a story with you. That's, that's very interesting. I had a lot of doctors sign up early on because they, they always wanted to go to, you know, to, to doctors without borders, but the investment and commitment is too much and you don't know where you're going and you got to go for six months. So I provided a really wonderful um, opportunity for them to go for two to three weeks uh, and treat people. And so when I saw so many doctors come on, I worked with the Red Cross and I said, you know, I want these Western doctors to have like an immersive experience because this is like an unusual experience for them. And I want them to be able to treat, which is, you know, not, you can't just go and treat people legally in, in another country. Um, so I worked with the Red Cross and we, we created this program that allowed Western physicians to treat, uh, it's called ICUS, in command, but under supervision. You know what I mean? So we had a, a doctor with them. One of the real challenges that they faced compared to the Indian doctors was that Indian doctors that are from that region know the ailments perfectly. Like they, they can w watch somebody walk. So when they treat somebody, they're treating them from the minute they walk into the room, like at the, at the door to when they sit down and what they say to them. The American doctors, would, they were like, listen, I can't make a decision here. We either need ultrasound, we need MRI, you know, the diagnostics come first, the insurance liabilities, you know, the lawsuits, right. that, it, it's the precondition of all that. Whereas the Indian doctors, that doesn't even exist. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and so, so a lot of the doctors were just like, wow, you know, I can't, it's not that they couldn't handle it. It's just that they didn't know how to go about confidently treating people without the diagnostics behind them. Did they have to consult with the Indian doctors first? Did they watch they, them? Did they observe them? They, they spent a lot of time observing them, but the Indian doctors wanted them. It's not even that they had Indian. We, we gave them their own rooms and they were uh, in, you know, under supervision with Dr. Aurora, who's a full, fully fledged doctor. So, so he was going back and forth to all the different rooms to make sure. No, we, we didn't have. Okay. Like, yeah, we all, we, we, when I say we had a lot of doctors on each ride, we had one to two doctors. You know, it wasn't like I had 100 doctors on a ride or something. And so, what about the whole issue about, you know, the different dialects in India? From what I understand, there's a thousand different dialects. The people in one place don't understand what anybody is saying in another place. How did you deal with all of those issues, the communication issues? Well, so for the most part, I mean, I speak Hindi. The, the regional dialect is Marwari uh, or Rajasthani, if you will. And I can barely understand that, but I, I get a sense and now I know what everybody's saying on a basic level. But most of you know, our teams are from that area. And so they understood it, you know, like, and then we're riding through that countryside and I'm speaking in Hindi and they're responding in Rajasthani. So Rajasthani is like two thirds Hindi and, and one third like Rajasthani or, or Marwari. Um, or half and half. So you kind of get the gist, but I wouldn't suggest that I'd be fluent in that dialect. And there are thousands of dialects in India, but they're also all over India in various states and areas. I got to ask the question, how did you fund all of this? Um, so I, I had actually worked in the nonprofit end of things at the beginning, whether it was in theater or special events or fundraisers. And I just didn't want to 
borrow any money anymore or ask, not borrow, but ask for money, fundraise. And I just said, listen, this is an amazing experience. Um, I want to put this out into the world experientially so that if people want to give back, they can come with me and you can have a fully, you know, full spectrum, like giving back experience that, you know, through our medical programs. And I made the company for profit, which is ironic because had I been nonprofit, I would have raised a hundred times more money, you know, like for my, for my budgets. But, you know, it's just the way I just didn't want to raise money anymore. Like I didn't want to ask or, you know, I just said, I want to make a business out of this. People will sign up, they will pay a ride fee. And in that ride fee, it's really like 800 to a thousand dollars more than your, your average uh, ride. That's a, you know, an equestrian vacation ride. And all of that, that extra money just goes to pay our programs. So the riders in essence are your revenue sources for this? Yeah, yeah so there's a ride fee and, and all of our ride fees pay for our programs. And excuse me, the riders are the doctors as well or, or are these no. lay people no. that are going along? What, what, no. Who are the so, riders? So let me, let me explain that. I, you know, when I started Relief Riders, it was in 2003 when I had the idea. And at that time you had to be like a UNICEF ambassador to give back, you know what I mean? Really give back in, in that type of setting, you know, medically with the same, or you had to come with a backpack and beg an, um, an NGO or some nonprofit to let you sleep in their back room while you give money and you try and help the kids. Like there was no setup for that. And I, I basically wanted the general public to have a full spectrum experience of what that was like to go do medical and social programs for, for the rural population. And that's why I did what I did. Does that make sense? I understand. But so we're saying that campers or what it, riders, as you call them, yeah. would, would be people that would sign up to go along on this and to help general, or to do yeah, what? So, to, to, so the riders would sign up. I, I invited the general public to join me. Um, you know, I, our first real we got an award from outside magazine and that was like, you know, full credibility. And I got a lot of people uh, to, to sign up. I filled a whole ride with that article. And, and yeah, so I basically invited people to come on this uh, 200 kilometer ride where we would do, now there are signature, there are signature humanitarian programs um, and they would literally be a part of it and watch, you know, be a part of all of our programs. So they helped in our dental and, free eye surgery program all day long. They would go to the schools and distribute four to six months of worth of educational materials and deworm 1200 children. Uh, and then we'd give away livestock to, to below poverty level individuals that really deserved it. Fantastic. And so people these are people that might've otherwise gone on an eco adventure vacation exactly. I mean, or something Robert, like that. And they go in with you instead. Yeah, you can come. We're waiting for you in, in November. Ride with well, us. You know what? If I can ride my bicycle, okay, then maybe I could do it. I can't ride hey, those horses. You know, okay, well, let me let me address that. So many. Well, I did. I did a an NPR interview in 2004. It was one of my first, and people were coming into that interview midstream, and I had so many phone calls after that. And when it would come to the time with when I would ask the person, "Well, tell me about your riding skills," and they didn't hear that part on the on the interview. And they were like, wow, um, we have to ride horses. And I'm like, yeah. And so I basically knew that this was a bigger experience than just a horseback ride. 
And we had a lot of spouses that didn't know how to ride and people that wanted to join. So what I did was I created a, a camel caravan that basically follows the horses. And if you don't know how to ride, you can join us on the camel caravan, which is unbelievable. You're traveling, you know, at a beautiful, like very serene pace through all of these villages, you see it all. And then you partake in all the programs. And instead of riding a horse, you're on a very comfortable shaded camel cart with a cooler book. People like paint, people take like their watercolors and paint from, it's crazy, yeah. I love it. Cam no, the camel's one hump or two. <laughs> one, sir. All right. I mean, this sounds like an amazing situation that you put together. And I'm sorry if I was trying to get into the weeds on this, but you know, when you hear about this in the big picture sense, at least somebody like me starts to say, well, how did you connect all the dots? How did you get, get this it. thing going? Yeah, I'm like okay. that too. I always like to figure something out or, or learn how it's, how it's possible. And I love the fact that you didn't have an idea in your head as to how you're going to pull this off at the beginning. I, I, had a, I had a very strong vision of it, which I, it, it's hard to describe whether it's spiritual. It was just night and day. It, 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 it sat on my shoulder. I mean, it was, it was, I could not not do it. It was like, it was very powerful for me. And I'm so blessed and so lucky to have been able to, have, to have, you know, to have been able to do it, like to have pulled it down from the ether, to have done it for 18 years, to have developed it to a level where, like I'm, I'm really proud of my team um, and the work that we've done. And, the, and, the, and most importantly, the, the experience that we offer, you know, which is like, I, I was, I'd been moved around as a kid so much. And I went to school in France and India. I lived in Afghanistan for three years on and off. We left that out before. Yeah, we did. Let's not get into that. Uh, yeah, I mean, we can, but but it's there's not enough time. You need to give me an hour, my friend. Okay, I assume uh, you weren't with the Taliban back then. No, no. <laughs> I was, um, but my, what I'm trying to say is that, you know, all of that, all of that moving around was was just, you know, shocking to me. Not shocking, but like, it shut me down a little bit. So I didn't perform at school very well. And they were always wondering why. And so, you know, later on when I started Relief Riders, I mean, I have only put like 10 testimonials up on our website. The amount of like how people just share the way they feel after a trip like that. I, when my mom was still alive, I, I told her, I said, mom, you know, I know I didn't do well in school, but you know, I feel really happy about this. And you just read the testimonials. Like, I can't believe I A plus the testimony. You know what I mean? You know, people talk all the time about giving back. And um, of course, that's a very admirable quality. But you have given back on a scale and at a level that is just beyond anything that I've, I've heard of. And I want to congratulate you for it. It's Thank been fantastic are. to speak with you. We have been talking with Alexander Sowery, who is the founder of Relief Riders International, this is some organization. I mean, not only do you offer these incredible experiences to your riders, you, you know, but at the same time, you're doing all of these great things for the people, the poor people of these countries that you're servicing. So I want to congratulate you on doing all of that. And I want to thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Thank you, Robert. It's a, it's a privilege to be here. It's nice to meet you. And we are going to listen now to the song that I uh, chose as the featured song for this episode, which I feel is pretty, pretty poor at this point, because I wrote it while I was riding my bicycle in the hills of Massachusetts. 
It's called Riding the Burks. And I want to thank you all for listening. And we will see you in the next episode. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.